As we've been going through this, and we come to the final period, and you have the you'll have this the records of this, so you can go back. And I don't really have to go back and uh, review much, but let us do this. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, established his church, and he promised to it perpetuity and succession, saying, "The gates of hell shall not prevail against it." We've also been made aware of the mystery of iniquity, Satan's worldly agenda by which he seeks to gain world domination and to sit in the temple of God in Jerusalem being worshipped as God. And let me share this. My son came up to me. He said, I thought sure you was going to go to this verse uh, when I was talking about how the Roman Catholic Church was exercising dominion over the kings of the earth. Um, but in the letter to the church at Thyatira, he said, But unto you, I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which you have already, hold fast till I come. As we go through here, we see the churches of Christ. While the gates of hell have not prevailed against it, it has worn it down generation after generation, century after century. Um, He said, And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto, unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations." The Catholic Church exercised dominion, a, a temporal dominion over the earth, as, and claiming divine authority to do so, an authority which they did not have. But to His churches and those who persevere, who have kept His name... To them, He does promise that they will have dominion over the earth when He returns and He rules and reigns upon the earth and we will rule and reign with Him and we will have dominion over the kings and the kingdoms of this world and we will have divine authority. The Catholic Church never did, does not, and will eventually will not reign over this earth. He pointed out, and I said, I, I'm going to use that. <laughs> I like that. I, I hadn't seen it. He said, I thought, sure, that's where you were going to go with that. Well, that, that would fit the train of thought, but I hadn't seen that. Uh, and so, as we said, that uh, the mystery of iniquity and it seeks to gain world domination to sit in the temple of God in Jerusalem, being worshipped as God. To this end, Satan has created a counterfeit, apostate church, the Catholic Church, which has continuously waged war against the church Jesus built, which we have identified as Baptist churches. We have followed events from the days of the apostles in the first century through the close of the Dark Ages in the 15th century, which brings us now to the modern period 
Now, some of this may not seem modern to you, but in the overall uh, history, it's relatively recent. It's modern period. It's last 500 years plus, uh, which most are familiar with being most recent. But notice in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, there's a statement. Revelation 1, verse 1, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servant. Now, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. This does not mean the revelation that Jesus Christ is being revealed, but it's a revelation of those things which must shortly come to pass, which belong to God, which he gave now to his son Jesus Christ to give to his servants. When Jesus was here, he said, no man knows the day or the hour, but my Father only. But here God has given this revelation to Jesus Christ to give to his saints. Those things which must shortly come to pass. And it's the phrase, shortly come to pass. We read that, what do you think of when you hear that word? Shortly come to pass. That is going to real soon. That's not what the word, the, the picture is describing here. He's describing events, and the word shortly here best is described like a, a snowball. It starts out small and slow, rolling down the hill. But as it continues to roll, it gains, picks up more snow, it gains more mass, it gets bigger. And as such, it begins to roll faster and faster and get bigger and bigger. That's what this is talking about. And so we've seen these events that he's laying out here and how as we go, there's more and more things happening. And, and when we get to this last period... You know, a lot of this stuff is kind of spread out here, but when we get down here, look how many things are listed here. Things are happening faster and faster. More and more is taking place until the end. That's what the word shortly means here. So, as we come to this last period, the last three churches, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, this is the Reformation that has begun to take place. Sardis means those escaped. And we've talked about the the dark ages and the rise of the papacy and the persecution both uh, in the west and in the east, in the west under the Roman Catholic Church, in the east under the Greek Orthodox. The persecutions have taken place. Those who have escaped, that survived, um... He said, I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. While the reformers are considered victors, heroes of the faith. They have a name, a reputation, that they live. But Jesus says, you're dead. Coming out of the Catholic Church, they have no baptism. Their only baptism was what they received in the Catholic Church. They have no ordinations. The only ordinations they had was what they received from the Catholic Church. They have no authority. Because the 
Because what they was doing, they were ostracized, they were excommunicated by the very church they came out of, which they have their origin from. They have no churches. They have a name that they live. He said, but you're dead. 1530 A.D., the Lutheran Church in Germany, Martin Luther. Luther was a Catholic monk. He did not want to... It was never his intention to split from the Catholic Church. It was never his intention to go to war with the Catholic Church. He was following a custom at at, uh, Wittenberg there that was a, a university. He was a teacher. He was a monk there and everything. And they had a, a custom that if you had a question, you wanted to debate something, you, what it was you'd want to debate, you'd take and nail it to the door. And that's what he did. He had some issues that he wanted to debate, he wanted to talk about. He had no intention of starting a reformation. But that's what happened. At this point, the Catholic Church had become so corrupt just so visibly corrupt that a majority of the Catholics were tired of it. They were fed up with it. Many of the kings are tired of the Pope telling them what to do. And so when Luther got in trouble with the church in Germany, the nobles backed him against the church. It was as much a political revolution as it was a religious movement. And there's a lot of things that happened, and we won't go into detail. Luther was not the hero of the faith that we have lifted him up to be. Number one, like the Catholic Church before him, like the Catholic that he remained in many ways... They hated and persecuted to death the Baptists. In 1531, the following year, Henry VIII of England separated the church in England from the papacy. Now, it wasn't out of any religious concern. If you know the story, he was married... But he wanted to get a divorce. And he applied to the Pope for a divorce. But the woman he wanted to divorce was from Spain. And Spain was one of the biggest political backers of the Catholic Church. And the Pope denied the divorce, not for any religious reasons, but because of political reasons he didn't want to upset Spain. And that's why Henry separated the church in England and said, Okay, I'm the king of England. The church in England is now, I'm the head of it. And he appointed whom he wanted as the Archbishop of Canterbury, and that became the head of the church in England. And it was as Catholic as it had been before Henry made that decision. So what we have here, really, in these that begin to break off here from the Catholic church are just branches of the Catholic Church. See, we think of them as being different, somehow separate. They're just branches of the Catholic Church. 
And they retain many of the doctrines and practices of the Catholic Church. And you go back to the original heresies we talked about back here. Baptismal regeneration, infant baptism, church-state relationship. Each of these because they needed the power of the state to protect them. And so each one established in Germany, the state church now was the Lutheran church. It was supported by the state. In England, it was the state church. It's supported by the king. Now you have Calvin, who started a work in in Switzerland, and that became the Presbyterian form of this revision. And these are the three main branches of the Protestant movement. Uh, That was in 1541, so ten years later. 1530, the Lutheran Church. 1531, the Anglican or Episcopal Church. 1541, the Presbyterian Church in Switzerland, but they spread out, uh, and that became the church in Scotland, and so on. And so we see all these split from the Catholic Church during the 16th century, and all of them persecuted the Baptists in addition to the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church didn't uh, stop persecuting the Baptists, but now you had the Lutherans, now you had the Presbyterians, and now you had the Anglicans in their nations where they held sway, persecuted the Baptists. And from what I understand, the Lutherans, their favorite form, you Baptists like immersion? They'd line them up, chain them together, and push them in the river. Let them drown. That was their favorite form of execution of Baptists. Think about that. Now, are those heroes of the faith? Are those representatives of the church that Jesus built? This is their history. This is what they did. This is how they started. A lot of that doesn't get taught, (laughs) you know. Look at all the good that Luther did. Look at all the good Calvin did. We won't talk about Henry VIII so much. (laughs) But these, these were the original. This is your Protestant Reformation right there. Those three. And they all person in England, they like to burn them at the stake. That was the Catholic. And like I said, the Church of England, the Anglican Church, wasn't that far removed from Catholicism. It just instead of the Pope, now they had the King of England as the head of the church. Revelation 3, 2, he said, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. And so... Uh, We see these new Protestant churches claim to be churches of Christ, but in reality they're no more than the daughters of Jezebel. Uh, Remember, therefore, and as he's addressing them, he says, Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard. What's he talking about? What had they received and heard? If they've heard any truth, it was from those Baptists, that had been persevering, that had been witnessing, that had been evangelizing, that had been sending out missionaries. And this was an interesting thing that people have remarked upon. You know, about the time the, the Protestant Reformation started, 
And you know how Lutheranism started in Germany with Martin Luther. And we know how the Anglican Church got started under Henry. We see the Presbyterian Church, the Reformed Church under Calvin. But all of a sudden, unexplicably, all over Europe, everywhere, Baptist churches are popping up everywhere. Fully organized, educated, taught, having associations, fellowships. Well, these others are just getting started and struggling. All of a sudden, everywhere, they're popping up everywhere. Where did they come from? This line right here. They've been preaching the gospel, sowing the, the seeds all through this time. And that's where they, they're, they're, they're popping up. And so people like to... And, and I believe in the, the Middle Ages, they refer to them as Anabaptist as, as a hyphenated word. Anna-Baptist. Now, at the time of the Reformation, they begin to call them Anabaptists as one word. And the Baptists of this time, actually, there's a confession of faith of some congregations in London. And they give a statement of their faith. And in the opening statement, they say, you know, so many Baptists, uh, uh, churches, congregations in London, falsely called Anabaptists. We resisted the name Anabaptist. And little by little, the Anna begins to be dropped to where now we're simply called Baptist, which we contend for all along. But we never did rebaptize anybody. They never had a true baptism to begin with. So, the baptism we gave was the first true baptism. Anyway, so he says, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and this is the witness of the Baptist martyrs, the radicals, the stepchildren of the Reformation. This is how they're referred to many times. In 1602, there is a group that separates from the Church of England in London. They were known as separatists at this point. And there's quite a few of them. And they're interesting and also important. Because out of this group of separatists, we can trace three groups. One group of these separatists left England because of the persecution and the pressure and everything. And they went to Holland and they began to live there. But they was concerned because their children was, were being assimilated into the, uh, the Dutch culture, and they really didn't want that. And so they purposed to come to the New World. And so there was a party of them that eventually were able to come. They got passage on a ship called the Mayflower, and they came over to America. They was blown off course, but they settled in a place called at Plymouth Rock, And those were the pilgrims. Now a later part of this same group that stayed in England became known as Congregationalists or the Puritans. We hear a lot about the Puritan writers. And they followed and basically they landed there too and they absorbed the pilgrims, but they were not the same character as the pilgrims. 
But there was another group. Out of this group of separatists. And they, became, they were studying the scriptures and became convinced of Baptist principles. But they didn't know of a Baptist church anywhere near that they could go to for baptism and authority. But they heard of a Baptist church in Amsterdam, in Holland, that was known to be a descendant from the Waldenses. And so they sent two of their number over to that church and got baptism and ordination authority, and they came back and baptized the rest of that group. And that became one of the most influential particular Baptist churches in London. And they all came out of that, all three of these groups came out of that separatist movement in England at that time. And that's why he says, Revelation 3 4, Thou hast a few names even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. He said, They will walk with me in white. These are the Baptists. They have not defiled their garments, they've not been corrupted by the Catholic Church. They were never a part of that. They've not been corrupted by the Protestant movement. He said, they'll walk with me in white. You go over in Revelation 19, the wedding. That's the bride, you see. Um, Just a few quotes, if you will. Sir Isaac Newton said, The Baptists are the only body of known Christians that have never symbolized with Rome. You know, people get upset with, with this teaching because they think, well, you're either Catholic or you're Protestant. Now, there's a third alternative. And Isaac Newton wasn't a Baptist, but he said that, there, that Baptists are the only known body of Christians that have never symbolized with Rome. Uh, Two eminent historians of the Dutch Reformed Church said, The Baptists may be considered as the only Christian community that has stood since the days of the apostles. And as a Christian society has preserved pure the doctrines of the gospel through all ages. Through all ages. Isn't that exactly what Paul said in Ephesians? Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages. And we see here Dutch, the Dutch Reformed Church acknowledging that very thing that Baptists have stood since the age of the apostles and have preserved that faith through all ages. Zwigli, the Presbyterian co-laborer with John Calvin, said the institution of Anabaptists is no novelty. It's nothing new. They say they started in the Reformation. Well, here's one of the leaders of the Reformation at the time of the Reformation. Said, no, they're not new. What he says is, but for 1,300 years have caused great trouble in the church. Talking about the Catholic church. Now that is Wiggly. Said, they've been a thorn in our side. They've been a trouble for 1,300 years. Doesn't sound like they started in the Reformation, does it? 
And if that's not enough, Cardinal Stanislaus Hosius, or I'm not sure how that is pronounced exactly, but he was the Pope's representative, his personal representative to the Council of Trent. Council of Trent was from 1545 to 1564. And he said this. He sat there through these trials, through these different things. Because the Council of Trent was established to, what do we do with these Protestants? What do we do with these people? How do we counter that? How do we defend against this? And he said, were it not for the fact that the Baptists have been grievously tormented and cut off, Talking about they were killed. Cut off with a knife during the past 1,200 years. They would swarm in greater numbers than all the reformers. And it does two things. He gives us a, a timeline and a date as to at least when the Catholic Church began to deal with it. And he also identifies them as a separate from the Reformation. Now, if you think about this, 1545, what year do you get when you subtract 1,200 years? 345. What are we talking about here? About the time Constantine made the Catholic Church the state religion of the Roman Empire and the Catholics turned the state against the Baptists because they wouldn't acknowledge them and join with them. That puts The Catholic Church has been trying to get rid of the Baptists all the way back to the days of Constantine. And this cardinal admits it. So, in this period of time, Council of Trent, 1545 to 1563... Tyndale's English translation, 1525. Now his translation was just the New Testament. The Geneva Bible, 1560, that took his translation of the New Testament and completed it with the translation of the Old Testament to where you had the complete Bible. The Geneva Bible was a result of Tyndale's translation. 1611, we know that date. What happened in 1611? But here's the thing. What did the Baptists use prior to 1611 in England? They used the Geneva Bible. King James was the head of the Anglican Church. As King of England, he was the head of the Anglican Church. Personally, he was a Catholic. He, he was kind of an awkward position there. He was a Catholic by faith. But as king of England, he was the head of the Anglican Church. The Baptists refused to use the King James Version for a hundred years or so. They said, it's a Catholic Bible. (laughs) That's history. But little by little, we've come to accept it and love it. I have a copy of the Geneva Bible, and I thought somebody had made a mistake. I thought they'd put that cover on a King James Bible because it almost read word for word with what we have in the King James. I think that's after a while they came to see that and accept the King James translation. That is some history, but we have those, those controversies to this day. 
And so the little bit of background and understanding in it hopefully goes a long way. The pilgrims came to America in 1620. You have the massacre of the Waldenses in 1655. That's when Cromwell was on the throne in England as the Lord Protector. And he sent... um, I knew his name. And it just went... um, To go over and to research and verify. Because they just heard some terrible tales coming back about the massacre of the Waldenses. And so Oliver Cromwell commissions Samuel Moreland to go over and to see. And he wrote a book, and I have that. Uh, It's about the history of the churches of the valleys of the Piedmont. And he goes through them, and there's illustrations. and, And what the Catholic armies did when they went through there was terrible. They massacred men, women, and children. And some of them who survived fled over the mountains. Now their descendants came back. They came back armed and they drove the Catholics out and they resettled that. Now the modern day, there's Waldenses there today. But they're not the same faith. They are Protestants. They accepted infant baptism and sprinkling. They are not their forefathers. And so, now we come down to the 1700s. The church at Philadelphia. Now, this is going on in Europe. Europe, England, is in turmoil, a religious war. And there, there is a, it's a religious war everywhere. In France, you have a group known as the Huguenots. And they're, they're massacred, and so on. And so these people... Church at Philadelphia, the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Verse 8 says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door. And I believe with all my heart that's talking about America. Look at all that they've come through. And now he says, now I'm going to set before you an open door. And no man can shut it. And the mystery of iniquity tried to shut it. Tried to cut us off. But Baptists came over. All these groups that was coming over here, and every one of those colonies, and every one of those colonies had a state church established by the charter they had, but there was Baptists in amongst them. Still stirring up trouble. Still refusing to have their children baptized. Have their children sprinkled. And preaching the gospel. And they were persecuted in these different colonies. Um, the first church in America wasn't established by Roger Williams. Roger Williams was not a Baptist. He, he held briefly to some Baptist ideas. But the church he established, he, he became convinced, well, it was all wrong. And he renounced it and left. And the church fell apart. Later, another group came in and did establish a Baptist church there. But that church was not the church that was founded by Roger Williams. And it was not the First Baptist Church. First Baptist Church um, uh, 
Newport, Rhode Island, Dr. John Clark, 1644. That's the first church that was organized. John Clark was an ordained Baptist minister in England before he came over. And so we have that connection back to to England through him. Um, And very important. The Welsh track, here we cut the Welsh again. They keep cropping up, especially with the English influence. The Welsh Baptists have been there since the days of the Apostle Paul. They've had a continuous existence because they lived in these mountainous areas, kind of like the Waldenses there in Italy and the Pyrenees in, in Spain. Um, that was a hard area to defeat. That's the reason the Romans never defeated the Welsh. They made a treaty with them and the Welsh began to serve in the Roman army and, and different nobles from Wales had come over and was part of Caesar's household that they were saved under the preaching of the Apostle Paul. When Austin came over in 600 A.D., they didn't completely wipe them out. They maintained an existence there. Anyway, in 1701, a church was organized in Wales with the purpose and intention of coming to America. And there was numerous preachers that were made up this church as well. And it became known as the Welsh Track Baptist Church. And they came over, I believe it was on the ship William and Mary, and they established what became known as the Welsh Track Baptist Church. And these preachers went out and began to preach and organize churches. And they had enough that in 1708, they formed the Philadelphia Baptist Association, the first association in the New World in 1708. And from that point on, you know... The Baptist influence just grew and spread exponentially. The missionaries going out and different ones going out uh, throughout the country, uh, up and down the coast, New York, the Carolinas, Virginia, Georgia, and then moving westward as men progressed. Baptists were right at the, the leading edge of all of that. You know, Kentucky, which is personal to me, you know, the first white man into Kentucky is said to be a, a Daniel Boone. The second man into Kentucky after Daniel Boone was a Baptist preacher. His name was Squire Boone. And so you see the influence there. And, and I'm not, we don't have time to get into all the history, but look at the history of the Lower Spotsylvania Church in Virginia and their pastor, Lewis Craig, who was imprisoned in Virginia for preaching the gospel. And Patrick Henry came and donated his services in defense of these Baptist preachers. Wonderful history. And Lewis Craig and the entire, almost the entire church moved and transplanted into Kentucky. Simple's history of the Virginia Baptist laments that Virginia lost most of her ablest preacher, Baptist preachers to Kentucky. John Gano, who was the chaplain with George Washington's armies, was a, a Baptist preacher. And he eventually settled in Kentucky in Lexington. Yeah, I think he established First Baptist Church there in Lexington. So, you know, it goes on and on. We're getting to, into a history now that's more closely related to our time and our experiences. 
Lewis Craig was the founder of the Bryan Station Baptist Church where I was saved and baptized and surrendered to preach. In 1786, in a fort, log cabin. Anyway, so as we go down through these things, uh, 1776, the Declaration of Independence, the War, Revolutionary War from 1776 to 1783. Matter of fact, when Craig made that trip from Virginia into Kentucky, it was in 1781. In the, the fall and winter of 1781, and, and in, matter of fact, they settled in Gilbert's Creek in December of 1781, two years before the end of the Revolutionary War. Um, so, the Methodists, well, they're coming along late. The Methodists, John Wesley and Asbury, separate from the Church of England in 1785. So, remember, your three branches of the Protestant Reformation. The Lutheran, Anglican, and Presbyterian. The Methodist Church is a split off the Anglican Church. Um, we see modern foreign missions begin. William Carey from England to uh, India in 1793. Uh, we see Adoniram Judson, who started out the, the, thing, the idea of foreign missions. And William Carey, who is a Baptist from England, this really began to spark the interest in uh, world missions, foreign missions, and they begin to send missionaries back to these other countries. Adoniram Judson, here in the States, hearing about William Carey there in India, he and his wife, and there was two or three others that were going, they were sent out by the um, Congregationalists in America. They were Congregationalist missionaries being sent to India. And he knew when he got there, he's going to be working alongside these works by William Carey. And they sprinkled, and they baptized infants. And so he needed to, to be able to defend their practice against them. Well, guess what? As he read and studied his Bible, he became convinced the Baptists were right. And so when he got to India, he got baptized by William Carey and his friends. And he sent one of them back to America to tell the Baptists, whether you want one or not, you've got a missionary over here that he needs some support. Because he knew the congregationalists not going to support him as a Baptist. Interesting history, <laughs> you know. Uh, we see in 1810, the Cumberland Presbyterians in America, they split off of the... Uh, European Presbyterian Church in 1810. In 1812, uh, you have the Disciples. And that's Alexander Campbell. Alexander Campbell and his father were Presbyterian. And they came over here. Now, he became convinced of immersion as the proper mode of baptism. And because of this, he became somewhat affiliated with the Baptists, and he would debate the pedo-baptists on the merits of, on the history of the Baptists, and, and on uh, immersion. And for that reason, he had access to Baptist churches, but he believed in baptismal regeneration. 
And he began to preach that, you know, baptism for salvation. And he tore up a lot of Baptist churches. And they got their start by pulling members away from Baptist churches. And so you have that movement there. The disciples, 1812. Um, Now we come down to Laodicea. The last one. This one is our day and age. Starting about the 1900s. And he writes unto the angel of the church in Laodicea, right. And so this picks up at the turn of the 20th century, the 1900s to the present day. He said, I know thy works. He said, you're lukewarm. He says, you, you think you're rich and increased with goods, but you're poor, spiritually. And so we see what has happened as America prospered. And and Christianity as a whole, those who profess to be Christian, all of these different denominations, they prospered here. Baptists had a struggle. They was always looked down on. But we multiplied, we grew fantastically here because this was the open door God gave to us as Baptists. The others tried to shut it. But as we began to prosper and become more acceptable, mainstream, we lost our zeal. That's why he says, repent and be zealous. We've lost our zeal. And so the things that we see since the turn of the century, and again... The mystery of iniquity at work, corrupting government, education, all these various fields of our culture, corrupting it. And with that, he's corrupted Christianity. And we have so intermingled with and been accepted by and sought to be accepted by the rest of, you know, Protestantism. We've been weakened and corrupted too and become more susceptible to these things. Or at least the pressure. Again, the intimidation. Don't speak out. Or bad things are going to happen to you. That's been Satan's method all through. And we see it today. And so we have the... Going back even into the 1800s, Charles Darwin... And the theory of evolution. And it was a theory. It's still a theory. And can never be anything more than a theory. Because it's not truly based on science or truth. Anyway. And from evolution has sprung. And most people don't, don't understand it. But you know what that seed of evolution produced Karl Marx Das Kapital the uh, oh the communist manifesto socialism and as that has spread and taken over education and everything else we have this secular humanism that has evolved out of this, and from this secular humanism that kind of man makes a God out of man. 
Now, what does that sound like, making a God out of man? Well, number one, Genesis chapter 3, when Satan says, you shall be as gods. Whatever you want, you make up your own rules, you're a god. You can discern what's right and wrong for you. Therefore, you can call evil good and good evil. And out of this has come this this woke agenda and movement that has taken over. And God help anyone that speaks out against it. This is our generation. And these things, the homosexuality, the transgenderism, these things destroy marriage, they destroy the families, they destroy our identity. You will create in the image and likeness of God. God created man. Male and female created He them. Period. But it destroys our faith in God. It destroys our understanding and faith and acceptance that God has made us how He wants us. He's purposed you and me. He knows the number of the hairs on our head. He knows our uprisings and down sittings are going out and are coming in. And finally, he says there's wars and rumors of wars, famines, pestilence, earthquakes. These things are the beginning of sorrows. The end is not yet. But you see how the snowball has gotten bigger and how quickly these events are coming. Fifty years ago, we could not have imagined what this country has become, what the world has become. But look what has happened in such a short time. I mean, 20 years ago, we could not have imagined this wokeness. Can't, can't tell what a woman is. And how ridiculous. On the one hand, they promote women's right, the woman's right to choose. But then they turn around and can't define what is a woman. So how do you know what she can choose if you don't even know what she is? He said, as many as I love, he rebukes and he chastises. If we go through some trials, when we're under persecution, when we're under pressure, we excel. We rise to the challenge. We overcome. It's just been too easy. We become lax. We've become lukewarm. We've lost our zeal. He says, repent and be zealous. He says, behold, I stand at the door knock. This was never intended as a verse for evangelism. Two of the most perverted, misused verses in the Scripture. One, he that winneth souls is wise. Actually do a word study on that. How do you win a soul? Is there a contest? Is there a competition? Is that a prize for doing something? You look that, those words up, in the Hebrew, the word win 
has to do with to seize, to take a hold of. The word souls, it has a variety of meanings, but it can be life is one of the meanings of that word. And when you take it in context, what the psalmist is talking about there, life is serving God, doing that which is right. He that seizes or takes a hold of life is wise. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. That's wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That's what that verse is talking about. It's not going door to door and witnessing to people and getting them to repeat a prayer and say, praise the Lord, I've saved another one. Well, you're saved now. This verse, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's writing to a church. He's writing to his churches in this Laodicean age that where we're cold and indifferent and have lost our zeal. And there's few and far, where true churches are few and far between. But he says, and this is a sad thing, he's to be the head of the church. He should already be in the church. He said, I'm on the outside. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you'll let me in, I will come in and fellowship with you. That's why he's speaking to churches. If Jesus... We're to knock on the door. I tell you what, a lot of people wouldn't let him in. I don't believe that. You know, it's like the Jews. He didn't meet their expectations. And they rejected him. He does not meet the expectations of the world today. And they reject him. He's the Lord whether you receive it, believe it or not. He changes not. But that's the challenge to overcome. Is to, as a church, receive Him in. Give Him that headship. Give Him the devotion. Inspire and stir that zeal. Cry out to God. God, revive us. Pour out Your Spirit upon us. Revive our zeal. And help us that we can stand and, and continue to earnestly contend for that faith that you delivered to our forefathers, which our forefathers have defended and handed down from generation to generation, have suffered and bled and died and given their lives to preserve it so that we have that blessing of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and being saved. God help us. Thank you. We'll close with that.